Anticipation is one of life's most complicated emotions, I think. It can keep us in complete excitement or leave us in complete misery, waiting for something we dread. Anticipating joyful events brings great thrill. But other times, as it has been famously said, the waiting is the hardest part. And anticipation, though, is the electrical charge within Psalm 45. This, this royal psalm about the king's wedding falls into two pieces, essentially. The first section, verses 1 to 9, describes the greatness of the groom. And the second section in verses 10 to 15 tells about beautifying the bride. And then there's a short benediction in verses 16 and 17. And it may not be surprising to you then that anticipation is highlighted through a work about a wedding. This psalm is is actually, at least in terms of its circumstances, the things going on around it, seems to be the only psalm that is exclusively concerned with human affairs. It's an event of a wedding. And they want God to bless it, but it's about this human event. And it's, it is also an unusual psalm in its sustained theme of joy with no hint of limit at all. No reminders of past suffering and not even repentance. It's, it's one of the few psalms that's totally filled beginning to end with rejoicing. And perhaps that's fitting for the theme of a wedding. Perhaps one of the reasons why so much anticipation surrounds the wedding day of two people we care about is that it is a day that all gathered intend to set aside their cares and focus on the joy of that day. And, I mean, I think one of the things that we should know as we think about this is that one reason, one reason among many that God inspired the Psalms is to teach us that one, so teach us one, that the Christian life is filled with the full spectrum of emotion. That's why God inspired songs for us to sing. And two, how the godly respond when faced with these various emotions. That's one of the things that the Psalter is given to us to do. And this psalm teaches us about godly expectation, anticipation, Although Psalm 45 focuses on joyous anticipation, it can also teach us about times of troubled anticipation as well. And so the main point as we come to our text is that in times of anticipation, God's people should reflect on the goodness of what God is providing and give themselves to preparation for it. God's people should reflect on the goodness of what God is providing and give themselves to preparation for it. We're going to think about this in three points this morning. Anticipating wonder, anticipating worry, and anticipating worship. And so first, anticipating wonder. And what we're going to do in this point is is consider verses 1 to 9, the first section of this text, which focus on the greatness of the groom. 
in order to see what should fuel, what should drive Christian anticipation. So verses 2 to 9 describe the honorable qualities of the king who, who is the groom of this text. So verse 1 sets the theme for the entirety of this psalm. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. So the psalmist wants his tongue to be like a ready scribe's pen. So he wants it to be eager to speak pleasing thoughts of the day as a scribe would be eager to jot down the good things of the event. And to be clear, as we think about this first section, it is verses 10 to 15 that show us that this is a psalm for a wedding. And there the the songwriter commands a princess to prepare herself to be brought before her groom. And so knowing that it's that knowing that the later verses, what the later verses are about, that tells us how important it is for the bride to prepare for her groom. And that helps us understand the earlier verses that recount how great this groom is. And so these, these first verses detail the groom's splendor. They mention his handsome appearance, his military might, and his righteous reign. These characteristics tell us why it is so important to prepare for him. They say that the king is someone worth preparation. The princess should prepare because she should be excited and thrilled to marry this man. Think think about, if you would, how you felt leading up to the, the last exciting event in your life. Maybe you had a big fancy date prepared with your spouse, something like that. What what did you do as that time approached? Did, did you sort of throw on the, the closest shirt you could find? Or did you plan carefully what you'd wear. You were likely intentional about how you presented yourself because it was such an exciting event. Or perhaps you had a big graduation or birthday party, something like that. Did you wait until that morning to make your plans? Or did you think ahead of time to set apart time and effort to celebrate. Maybe there was even a wedding in your life. Weddings, I mean, even if they're not our own, are some of the biggest events in our lives. We, we set aside entire days to celebrate. We buy new outfits so that we could look our best. And we do these things because we want weddings to be perfect, even if it's not ours. As we crave this idealized experience of joyous celebration. And and so then, perhaps it's not accidental that that a psalm used in a wedding is one that seems to set aside ordinary troubles. And think not of them at all. Perhaps... 
this psalm's very nature reminds us that as we gather together for something like a wedding, whether they be our own or not, or someone from our friends and family, that we should set aside life's troubles for a time so that we can reflect on God's abundant goodness. The the greatness of this groom gives the bride all the more reason to be excited and prepare well for him to come to her. If we disconnect these verses here from the rest of the psalm, then we then really just have as a string of compliments. In light of the impending wedding, though, the king's character provides the reasons that the bride should be thrilled. The the groom's attributes here, I mean, they they could seem pretty odd to us if we think about this. I mean, his arrows are sharp against his enemies. I mean, talking about his majesty and that sort of thing. If we were thinking about a wedding, it, these may seem odd things meant to impress a bride or even impress those who are attending. We, I think we tend to think more in this context about romantic and charming and responsible. But in the context of the ancient Near East, these attributes were striking. Marriage provided a princess not only the excitement of love, but also the opportunity for political alliance and protection of your own people. Nothing would be more cause for rejoicing than marrying not only a handsome king that rules righteously, but also the biggest, baddest military leader who would watch over your people. That would be a tremendous blessing. And so, as we think about this, anticipating wonder happens when we consider the goodness that God is providing before us. And that produces anticipation of excitement in joyfully awaiting God's blessings. That brings us to think about our second point, though, anticipating worry. So so the first point uh, showed how reflecting on God's good provisions in life gives us reason to be excited and filled with anticipation in positive terms. In this point, though, we consider when anticipation can be more daunting. So so we look at the second half of this psalm, where the psalmist exhorts the wedding bride to prepare herself for coming to the groom. It, it may not shock any of you to learn that I have never been a bride. The... The day I got married, though, I did learn a few very important things about what's entailed in being a bride. And I know that one of the most important things is that I was not to see the bride before the proper time. We all take time to prepare and even more time when desire to look particularly extravagant. And it burdens us. I mean, it's a real problem personally, even if not ex- objectively. It's a real problem for us when our preparation process is interrupted. And so whether we have been a bride or not, 
we know what it's like to feel the pressure of wanting to look our absolute best. And we'll move to think about more than looks shortly, but that's what this passage is about. And we, we've all been in some situation where we know how we want to look and what it will take to get there. And if you're like me, the difference between how we want to look and how to get there is sort of a miracle. That pressure, though, adds stress to our lives. Even when we're excited about why we're getting ready, as the bride of this psalm is, should be, it is incredibly worrisome to have that thought working, lurking in our minds. Is this enough? Because we all know that that sort of nervous anticipation per... Perhaps we can think of the first day of work at a new job or our kid's first day of school or moving to the opposite side of the world as so many people here have. All these things offer great promise and hope. But they can also entail great worry as we prepare for them and ask, am I really ready for this? Did I do all that I could do? Sometimes the greatness of the thing that awaits us heightens the nervousness that comes with it. And the psalmist's advice to this bride is helpful here. The psalmist points to God's goodness. In what God is giving her. The bride should reflect on her groom's greatness and all his strong character. And we too must consider the goodness of what God sets in front of us. And remember that our God, our Father, who would lovingly provide such goodness for our lives, would not abandon us in our time of need. And that should go far in easing our anxiety. So read verses 14 and 15 with me, if you will. In many colored robes, she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. So the psalmist reminds the bride of the joy that's coming to so that he could color the way she feels her anticipation as she waits for the coming of her groom. And the psalmist gives us more to consider, though. Verses 10 to 15 emphasize preparing. The end goal of this preparation, we we see it in verse 13. All glorious is the princess in her chamber. With robes interwoven of gold. The goal, I mean, to, to put this in terms for us, the goal of preparation is to present herself in splendor when the king arrives as her groom. And so, I mean, here, here's, here's where we get practical traction. This means that it is not useful to sit in worried anticipation. It is much better To devote ourselves to what we can do. And we always have some way that we can be preparing. 
The psalmist exhorts us then to look to God's goodness and give ourselves to work. How it's so easy though, isn't it? I mean, how often do we forget these things? For some reason, this is precisely the exhortation that we need in times of anticipation because we so quickly forget God's goodness and we so quickly let ourselves fall into idleness as we worry. You know, as we, as we think about the psalm as a whole, we, we can't really know uh, which Israelites which Israelite king's wedding this was written for. Uh, John Calvin, though, noted about this lack of knowledge that, yes, it was written for some Israelite king's wedding, but really, it's about the bride of Christ, who is the consummate, righteous, and mighty king. Calvin was right to point us to our relationship with Christ as we are his bride. And it's also true that we as the church are in a time of waiting for our groom to come and seal our marriage. We wait for Christ's return to claim his bride, to bring in the new creation, to right every wrong, and to give us a celebration seat at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And that should fill us with tremendous joy. And we will wait expectantly with joy, but this waiting can also fill us for the King to return, King Jesus to return. That wait can fill us with anxiety. We, the bride awaiting our groom, worry about the state in which he will find us. Do we not? Have we done enough? Will he find us pleasing? And that intensifies as we think about the exhortation to prepare. The way that we beautify ourselves as the waiting bride is growing in godliness, our sanctification. And one thing I do know about wedding days is that brides would rarely be happy to walk down the aisle in sweatpants. Trousers, sorry. They long to be arrayed in extravagant beauty and are satisfied with nothing but perfection. Rightly so, in some ways. And we should be no different as we await our groom. We also should long to be found the holiest we can be. And that, though, can induce a sense of fear as we wait for our groom. Anticipating worry is that sense of inadequacy. That sense of longing to be found pleasing, wait for our groom to come. And that brings us to our third point, anticipating worship. 
So the first point focused on the splendor of the king. And then in the second point, we ended noting how this psalm's exhortation can produce anxiety over the responsibility to prepare for our coming groom. And in this point, what I want to do is turn our attention to reasons that we are brought to worship through the theme of anticipation. And so I hope that this point should alleviate that worry and point to the ways that God provides for us in Christ, which ought to result in worship and excited anticipation. So, you know, the question that I think we should sort of ask as we think about this psalm is, why would God think expectation, anticipation was an important enough emotion to inspire this unique psalm about it. How does anticipation fit with the Christian life? And I want to argue, present it to you for your consideration that in one sense, in one sense, anticipation is the essence or at least a facet of faith. As we look forward in hope, faith anticipates. But we'll get to that explanation in just a moment. So you, so you have to wait for it. Anticipate it. Maybe. Maybe you'd just rather be done. In the introduction, though, I mean, so, so I mentioned how one of the reasons why so much anticipation surrounds the wedding day of two people we care about is that it is a day that all gathered intend to set aside all their cares and focus on sharing that day's joy. Indeed, as we think about our role, the church's role as Christ's bride, and how Paul used the marriage to illustrate Christ's love for us, we see why we should set aside our worldly cares, not only for earthly weddings, but even more so as we think about our heavenly wedding. Hebrews In Hebrews 1, 7 to 9, the author used Psalm 45, 6 and 7, to contrast the lowliness of the angels to the grand description of the king. And this king is Christ. If you'd look at these verses with me quickly. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, if you look carefully at a a couple of interesting details here, at the beginning of verse 6, it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And so this this verse is addressed to God. And yet, when we get to the second half of verse 7, it says, Therefore, God... Your God has anointed you. There's a conversation happening here. 
where a person who is God is anointed by God as the groom. And I hope you gather that Jesus Christ, God, the Son, is anointed in this conversation by God the Father as He is the groom, the King groom. In other words, the author of Hebrews saw this psalm as about being about the righteous reign of Supreme King Jesus. And so Calvin, as we noted earlier, was really just ripping off the book of Hebrews when he said that Christians should primarily read this psalm to be about the greatness of our coming groom, Jesus Christ. So perhaps it is best we do not know this psalm's historical background, which Israelite wedding this was written for, because that leaves us the freedom to let it direct us entirely to our coming king who longs to have us as his bride. And is that not the glorious message of the gospel? Paul wrote in Ephesians 5, 25-27, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So th- this passage is, is so important for us as we consider ourselves as a bride preparing for our coming groom. Because, I mean, here's the thing, and we all know it, we are a sinful bride, and we can never fully prepare ourselves. And still, Paul said that our the way that our groom loves us is to do that preparation for us. We don't have it in us to make ourselves more holy. But Christ will sanctify you. Moreover, whereas ancient brides had to provide a a dowry, a payment to the husband, our groom paid the marriage price for us. And he paid it with his life. Whereas most kings waited to see how much wealth a bride could bring him, our king took a beggarly bride and died on the cross so that he might give us eternal life, riches beyond imagination in his heavenly kingdom. Revelation 19, 7-9 tells how Christ the Lamb comes and, and the bride has made herself ready. So his, his return will be 
from one perspective, to put it this way, his return will be for his wedding. And we are those invited to the feast. Our psalm points us to this ultimate wedding. No, no earthly groom can ever measure up to the greatness of this groom in Psalm 45. And no earthly king could ever be as righteous. The wedding of Psalm 45 paints a picture of a bride anticipating the arrival of her perfect groom. And we are that bride anticipating our perfect groom who will seat us at his table. So anticipating worship is about how we as Christians are those who have reason to hope. Our anticipation, although it can often turn against us, should be oriented towards that day when we will see our Lord come. We have before us this morning the Lord's Supper, which is no ordinary meal. It's a feast given to us by our Lord. As we anticipate the consummate wedding feast of the Lamb when He returns to claim us as His bride, as we are in this time of waiting, He left us this meal as an appetizer for that wedding feast. It is a promise here as we gather of His presence with us until He returns. It is a down payment, a sample of the banquet that we will eat in eternity. And so, as we prepare to gather to this table, know that our Savior, our perfect groom, meets us here to feed us so that we might be well prepared to see Him come. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful that you have given us such a wonderful groom to expect. That as we reflect on this psalm that is a celebration of a king's wedding, that you one reason you have given it to us is to direct us to celebrate our coming wedding as the bride of Christ. That we might give ourselves here to prepare as his bride. But we are thankful, so deeply thankful, that you do not leave us on our, on our own, but that Christ himself works in us by his Spirit to help us prepare. And that you have given us this meal that we're about to take together to feed us as a means of grace, to strengthen us as we prepare. And so we pray that you would make these truths real in our hearts today, even this week, as we go back into the world. And we pray that we would be filled with joyful expectation, anticipation that is wonderful and worshipful, and that puts aside worry, because we know we have the supreme groom 
the best king who reigns righteously over the universe and who has given everything to make us his bride. And we pray these things in his glorious name for the sake of Christ. Amen.